I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn uh, with me to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to look at an aspect of this study we've been calling manna. It's something we really haven't touched on so far. Um, Exodus chapter 13, we're picking up, and, and, I'll, and I'll summarize this just as quickly as I can, uh, this 40-year period of time, this 40-year chapter between their coming out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery and their going into the promised land. Uh, it, it was a 40-year chapter. Uh, it was a chapter that did not need to last 40 years, but because of some disobedience, it did last 40 years. Um, even in spite of the disobedience of the people and the rebellion of the people, you see the absolutely remarkable grace and kindness and mercy of God in their lives. Uh, even as the vast majority of them were in rebellion and, 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 and their hearts were not in tune with him, their, their hearts were not open to him, their hearts were not teachable to him, he still showed them mercy and grace and kindness and he guided them uh, through all those years until they took their dying breath. Um, there was such a thing as what we call common grace, that God gives grace to all men. The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust as well. If, if you ever stop and reverse engineer... Uh, this would be an interesting thing to do. We, oftentimes we have dinner with our families and we will bow our heads and thank God for the food. But if you want to do something that I think is a great exercise, would be to not only thank God for the food, but then perhaps have a discussion with, with your family and reverse engineer what it took for you to enjoy what it is that is on the table, reverse engineer how you even got that table, reverse engineer how you even got the house, reverse engineer how you ever got your family. In other words, what I'm saying is, take that moment in your life and reverse, you know what I mean by reverse engineer. Um, I, I've been told there are certain uh, companies that do this. They will um, find a product that is superior and they will just simply reverse engineer. They'll just start taking it apart and figuring out how did they do that and then they copy it, you see. Uh, it's reverse engineering. Do that sometime with the grace of God in your life. 
and take it all the way back to first causes. Uh, see, we don't, we don't take it back far enough. If we do, and, and, and if you do, and when you do, you'll be overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the provision of God. Because it all comes from him. Uh, in this period of 40 years, God led them. Uh, when we come to know Christ, Psalm 23 is that six-verse little psalm that encapsulates the Christian life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Watch this. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And on down to verse 4 uh, and 5 and 6. But it says there that he leads me. He leads me. He, he uh, and we know that he's leading us. And as we go through life, we find ourselves uh, in the different stages of life. We've talked in here about the different chapters of life. Um, it seems like, and just like a biography, uh, you read a biography and it's in chapters. They'll take a guy's life and just break it up into chapters, kind of bite-sized pieces. But don't, isn't it true our lives have chapters, just like biographies? And so what that means is this. You are either entering into a chapter you are either in the middle of a chapter or you're in a chapter that is coming to an end and you are transitioning, turning the page to a new chapter. It's amazing. We have chapters of our lives, but isn't it interesting, at the beginning of each chapter and at the end of each chapter, you've got a transition. Um, Oftentimes, now we need daily guidance and we need daily, daily leadership and we need daily wisdom, but we also, in particular, are acutely aware of our need of guidance and our, our need of God's leadership on our life when we are in transition and, and we've had a sense of comfort, but we've got a transition coming. It might be in your health, it might be in your, in your finances, in your job security, uh, a loss of assets or something. You, you, you know what I'm saying. Um, relationally, this can happen. It can happen, um, oh my gosh, you know, 100 different ways, 1,000 different ways. But we find ourselves, we, there is a transition that is coming our way. We've had a certain level of comfort and now we uh, are acutely aware that things are going to change. And, and what do we need? We need wisdom to navigate this. We need wisdom to face it. We need wisdom to make the best possible choices because wrong choices could be devastating. Uh, we need to be led. We need to be guided. And we oftentimes ask God to show us his will. Do we not? Sure we do. Of course we do. All right. Now, go back to Exodus chapter 13. And I want to show you something. We really haven't gotten into this yet, but I want to get into it tonight. The whole issue of guidance. The whole issue of his leading them and guiding them. And we're going to pick it up in Exodus 13. Just as they are coming out of Egypt. Um, 
Let's pick it up at verse 18 of 13. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. We all know about the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. So they're coming out of Egypt. They have plundered the Egyptians to get them out of there. They have given them their Rolexes. They've given them their stock certificates. They've given them their, uh, their IRA. They've just looked gold, silver. These people were poor and um, they just loaded on them to get them out of there. As they are making their way, uh, if you look at verse 20, it says that they camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now, they're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years, but they're not there yet. They're on the edge. Now, watch this. Now, watch this. This is wild. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So you've got this pillar. Um, by day, it's a cloud, just a cloud. And at night, it transforms into fire because they were in the wilderness. Uh, my son John was, uh, my kids were all over. Uh, the house last night, um, celebrating my birthday, which is today. And thanks for all those gifts, guys. <laughs> I, no, thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, touch my heart. Appreciate it. Yeah, 47 years old. I'll tell you what. It's hard to believe, man. Anyway, 64. 64. My funeral is a week from Thursday. <laughs> I, I, I just put it down. Hope you can be a part of that. Uh, so anyway, and, and John and Christina had just driven in from, is it Marfa, Texas? M-A-R-F-A. Is that it? M-A-R-F-A. And it's a little town in West Texas that is sort of artsy, hippie, they got some kind of, a lot of art, minimalist art. Uh, I guess that means there's not much to it. <laughs> a little commentary. Um, but very unique place. And they were there for a couple of days with some friends, just taking a little trip. But one of the things they did, apparently there is a observatory not far from there that UT has and they went one evening to a presentation uh, by one of the professors in terms of um, the stars. And I, I forget, what, they had some name about, something about night. Anyway, it just, but, but here was the thing. He said it was wild because outside, out in the middle of nowhere, and absolutely no light. Uh, they demanded that cell phones be turned off, uh, no light whatsoever. And so they're just sitting in absolute darkness in the middle somewhere of West Texas. Now, we're not familiar with darkness because we live 
in, a, in, in, in the Metroplex, and there's always light somewhere. But you get off away from lights, and darkness is thick. And they're sitting there, and they had to sit for 45 minutes because they were told going in, it takes 45 minutes for the eyes to recalibrate themselves from any kind of light. So, there's, so John's telling us all this at the table last night, and he said, he hears this gentleman begin the presentation, and he's listening to it, and he's just listening and thinking, it's absolutely pitch dark, and uh, it's going on for 10, 15, 20 minutes, and, uh, he, and, and, he, start, and, he, and he looks, and he, and, and he suddenly sees a man down there, and it's, it's the man whose voice is being projected, but he, John couldn't even see the guy. But now his eyes have recalibrated, and this man then pulls out a laser pointer. And John said the stars were absolutely spectacular. And with his laser pointer, would talk about the different stars, the different planets, and had this laser pointer, and it didn't point to a screen, but literally pointed to the sky, and would highlight he said it was the wildest thing he had ever seen. See, we tend not to, what, what that did, it drove home to me this very point. Because you see, what does it say? The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. Why? Because it was so utterly and absolutely dark out where they were. Now, this is how God led them. This is how God guided them. And 22, he didn't take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. This is how they were led. And they had a tabernacle. This is going to come. They're going to construct a tabernacle. It was portable. And the glory of the Lord would, the cloud of the Lord would be above that tabernacle. And when it was time to move out, the cloud would move, and they would pack up that tabernacle, and then they would follow the cloud. And when the cloud rested, they would put up the tabernacle, and when it moved, they moved. When it, when it stood still, they stood still. And this is how God led them and guided them through life for 40 years. Uh, flip over to Exodus 14, because in Exodus 14, even as you're looking at verse 1, they're camped at the Red Sea, uh, as they're camped at the Red Sea, doing pretty well, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 4, he will chase after them. I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Uh, Pharaoh has a change of heart. Why? God changed his heart. He said, why have I let these people go? They were the economic engine of our economy. He decides to get his men, to get his chariots, to go after them. And as they're camped at the Red Sea, suddenly here comes Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army, um, verse 9, the Egyptians chased after them. Um, in verse 10, the people were frightened. They called out to the Lord. Um, now watch this. You know the story. God's going to open the Red Sea. Now let's go to verse 21. God opens the Red Sea. They're crossing through. Verse 21 of 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turned the sea into dry land. The waters were divided. They cross 
Look at uh, verse 24. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. So what happened was that cloud descended on Pharaoh's army as they were attempting to follow through, and that was the end. It was their own demise. So that cloud not only led them, that cloud not only guided them, but that cloud protected them. Um, you, you, ever, uh, you ever get confused about what the Lord wants you to do? You ever wonder, you know, should I take that job or not? Um, should we make that move or should we not? Should we? Uh, I kind of like this cloud thing. Don't you? I mean, quite frankly, it just cuts through everything. It was real simple. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stood still, they stood still. Um, flip over to Nehemiah 9. Um, if you're in Matthew, you've gone too far. Uh, go back to your left. You know, it's a challenge, isn't it? To, to find all these books in the Bible. Don't you think? I mean, sometimes it's just, man, where is all this stuff? Uh, if you're in Psalms, go right. If, what did I say? I'm dyslexic. Yeah, if you're, yeah, you're right. You're right. Somehow I found it. Anyway, go to Nehemiah 9. Um, now, Nehemiah here is going to give a little history lesson. And we'll pick, I just, I just want to highlight, and we'll do this pretty quickly. 9-9, uh, nine, nine. you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. All right, we just read that. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. And you knew that they acted arrogantly towards, toward them. You divided the sea before them. They passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. Uh, look at this, verse 12. And with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night. Now watch this. Here it is again. To light for them the way in which they were to go. There is the guidance of God. Um, oh, and by the way, go down to verse 15. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst, and you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. Uh, our study we're calling manna. That just encompasses what happened during that 40 years not to belabor the point, but you got two million people in the wilderness away from all the cities, so all supply lines were cut off. How do you feed two million people a day? God did it supernaturally by providing manna. No supply lines, no Costco's, no Sam's Clubs, no refrigeration. How did he feed them? It was new every morning. That night, they had run out of the previous, that day's provision. So if it wasn't there in the morning, they were done. It would be there supernaturally. The manna would be like dew. It was uh, Exodus, what is it, 16? Uh, Wafer-like, tasted like honey, 
coriander seeds, and they lived off this manna every morning for 40 years. It was a supernatural provision of God. It was what we have said is that manna is a well-timed help. It's a provision of God. We've tied it in the John 6, 35, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So Jesus, the claim he's making in John 6, when you take the whole book, the, whole, the claim he's making is he is God. He invented life. He owns life. He sustains life, all of life. He provides for us well-timed helps in any and every area of life as we find ourselves in need. He is our provision. He is our God. He is our refuge. He is our source. He is our bread. He is our rock. He is our salvation. He is our sovereign defender. He is our sovereign keeper. He is our God. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our shepherd. So we're okay. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you would. Okay. Now, I got a question for you. This is called the transition. Here's my question. So back then, when you needed guidance, it was very clear how you were going to get the guidance. You had this cloud. The cloud never went away. Cloud by day. By the way, very practical, because the cloud would protect them from the hot sun. At night in a wilderness, we're going to see this in a minute, at night in a wilderness, and this wilderness had deserts in it, uh, deserts can drop. It can be really hot in the day at a desert. But amazingly, it can get really, really cold that night in a desert. So they had the pillar, which would transform into a pillar of fire, which not only gave them light to see where they were going, but it also gave them heat. And God was the one who set the thermostat depending on their circumstances and what they needed. So he actually was the one who regulated their environment according to their need. He had them covered on every single level of their lives. Their sandals never wore out for 40 years. I mean, he had them taken care of. Okay. Now, here's the question. How do we get guidance today? How does God guide us how does God lead us? How is it that when we find ourselves in transitions, when we find ourselves in need, when we're under pressure, when we've got to make critical decisions, how is it that he leads us? How is it that he guides us? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 119, which this time do go to your right. Thank you very much. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. Psalm 119 is all about the Word of God. Note verse 105. It says this. It says, Your cloud and your pillar of fire is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Is that what your text says? Your text doesn't say that. Your text says this. Your text says, your what? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see, in that wilderness for 40 years, if they needed guidance, they just looked up and there it was. 
Now, there, there's a similarity because today, when we need guidance, we look up. But you see, we look up, but we take the book in hand. Because what was it that the pillar of fire did for them at night? It gave them light so they could see in the darkness. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to what? To my path. So once again, once again, as we're doing this study on manna, and it was a supernatural provision of God over the last couple of weeks, we've also been hitting the fact that Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The manna was for their, their physical sustenance, got them through the day physically. But we also live life on a spiritual level, and it is the word of God that sustains us physically. Once again, now we're talking about guidance, and once again, we're back to what? We're back to the word of God. We keep coming back to the word of God. I'm starting to think this is important. I'm starting to think this is central. I, I'm starting to think this is something that God is trying uh, to get across to me that this, as Deuteronomy 32 says, is not an idle word for me. It is my life. And you say, Steve, you keep banging this drum. You can't read the Bible without that drum being banged. Would you agree? Yeah. And I want to give you some news. I want to give you some good news. There is, for us today, the Lord promises to give us guidance. So I want to give you two things right out of the blocks here tonight. Uh, the first one is the ironclad promise of guidance for us. Turn with me, if you would, to... Uh, Psalm 32. Yeah, oftentimes we find ourselves in need. We find ourselves in a situation where we're under great pressure and duress. And we're asking the Lord for guidance. Lord, I just want to know your will. I just want you to show me your will. Um, by the way, keep your finger there. Do you know that there are certain places in Scripture where God tells us his will? Did you know that? Flip over to 1 Thessalonians 4. Keep your finger in Psalm 32. I had this down for later. Let's just do it now. Uh, go over to 1 Thessalonians. If you're at Revelation, go left. If you're in Matthew, go right. If you're in 1 Timothy, go left. Okay? 1 Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Watch this. For this is the will of God. 
That's pretty clear. Oh, what's the will of God? You ever want to know the will of God? Well, here it is. You might want to underline this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Big word. All it means is to be set apart. When you get your paycheck, do you go through the, the drive through at the bank, cash it, and put that money in your pocket and just start spending money? Probably not. Uh, what you do is you get that paycheck, you deposit it, and you have, uh, you have set up a sanctification of that money. Uh, another word for sanctification is a budget. Uh, you deposit your check, and you've got a budget, and you've got a certain amount of money budgeted for your mortgage payment or for your rent. You've got a certain amount um, for, the different, for, for, your, for your giving to the Lord's work for you know, your kid's education, for food. you got a budget. And what that means is you have simply, to, bu to, to budget means to set apart, it does. To sanctify means to set apart. So you take the money and you set it apart for an intended purpose. Sanctification means to be set apart for an intended purpose. What, what does this say? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. When we come to know Christ, and by the way, you don't need to clean yourself up before you come to know Christ. You just come to Jesus as you are. You come to him because you can't clean yourself up. You come to him. You throw yourself on his mercy. You believe that he is the Savior. You admit that you are a sinner. You, you believe that he is God. You believe that he died in your place. You ask him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins, you ask him to lead you and guide you. Um, see, he'll clean you up. And now you're going to be, there's going to be spiritual birth. And now you're going to start on the process of spiritual growth. And you say, well, what is the will of God for me? The will of God is that you be set apart, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And let me tell you the good news. The moment you receive Christ, you will never, ever again dabble in any kind of sexual temptation. Now, there's some churches that teach that. And it's wrong. See, we're infants when we are born again. And we've got to begin the process of growing. And God is very patient, and God is very gracious, and God is very kind. Uh, we're going to struggle with sin. That's why you've got the book of Romans. Because it tells us about justification. And then it tells us about the fact that as we're set apart, we're going to begin to grow. And we're going to grow in our faith. And we're going to grow in grace. And we're going to grow in regard to our ability to uh, uh, mortify sin. That means to kill sin. Uh, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Well, it, it doesn't happen overnight. There's not immediate sinlessness. So sometimes guys think, man, I'm still struggling with sin. I, may, I must not be a Christian. No, you probably are a Christian. Flip over to 1 John 1 9, you say, Oh, yeah, I know that verse. That's a great verse. It is a great verse. Um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. That's a great, great verse. But look at what comes just prior to 1 John 1, 9. Speaking to Christians, this letter, he's addressing Christians, and he says this, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Sin still lives within us. Now, we're going to learn to put sin to death. It'll never be eradicated until uh, we have glorified bodies. So we're going to struggle with sin. But we want to learn, as we're growing in Christ and we're set apart, we're going to learn to not feed sin, but to starve it. But again, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a few months. You're going to be, you're going to be struggling. You're going to be growing. You're going to be develop, developing. And in the middle of that, uh, if we say that we have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. But if you confess your sin, go ahead and admit it. Uh, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, in 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Just come clean. Say, Lord, I sinned. This is not what I want, but I thank you for the blood of Christ that forgives me. Now, the question is, how do you begin to grow? We're on our way to Psalm 32, but stop off again at Psalm 119. And I'm just flipping stuff around here. Because 1 Thessalonians 4 says, This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. Man, Steve, you know, I've been watching pornography since I was eight, nine years old. Uh, man, this stuff's got a grip on me. Sure it does. You bet it does. That stuff's powerful. Uh, where am I going? Psalm 119. So then it asks the question in Psalm 119. Get over there. In, verse, in the opening verses... Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy what? Word. There you go. See, we keep coming back to the Word. The Word of God has power. So I've got all these images in my mind, and at night, you see, when my wife and kids are, you know, I'm tempted to go downstairs and do all this stuff. And see, this is where you've got to get some accountability, and this is where you've got to build some uh, boundaries into your life and, you know, anticipate that when you're on a business trip, it's more easily, it, it's easier to give in the temptation than when you're at home. We just got to use our heads. We've got to realize we're in battle here. Uh, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. So what do you have to do? You got to start putting the word of God in your heart and in your mind. Uh, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, isn't that Romans 12? But be, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what? Mind. Well, how am I going to do that? I've got to put the word of God in my mind to counter all that sludge that's up there and see the word of God, Hebrews 4, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword it's able to divide between joint and, and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, Ephesians 6, it's my offensive weapon. Take up the word of God, uh, which is the sword of the spirit. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do, watch this. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Where are his commandments? In his word. 
the tendency is for us to wander from the Word, from the Bible. Don't let me wander from your Bible. Your Word, 11, I have treasured in my heart that I may not, watch this, sin against you. So I'm seeing a correlation here that if I'm going to grow spiritually in grace and in power to overcome sin, that is directly related to my involvement in putting the Word of God into my heart and mind. You tracking with me? So we keep coming back to the Word. Okay, now let's go to Psalm 32 because God gives a promise of guidance in Psalm 32. See, this is all about how he guides me, how he leads me. All right. Now, here you go. Psalm 32. Look at the promise of guidance that God gives to his people. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That is a flat-out, ironclad promise. Do you want God to counsel you? you want God to lead you? He says that he will. But watch this. He wants you to have a teachable spirit. Next verse. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. What won't come near to you? Instruction, counsel from God, guidance from God. In other words, God says, listen, I will instruct you, I will counsel you, I will teach you in the way that you should go. But when I do it, don't you be like some horse. You, you, I used to rent in Half Moon Bay, California with my friends, and these horses would, they were, these horses were smart. They'd go about 200 yards, and then the foreman would leave, and they knew they had some high school kid on it, didn't know what he was doing, and they just going right back to the barn to get their hay. They didn't care where you wanted to go. And they didn't care if you'd paid for two hours or four hours. They were going back to that, that barn. And if you had your girlfriend there and wanted to ride holding hands through the little waves coming up on the sand, they didn't care. They didn't give a rip what you wanted. They were going to do what they wanted. Don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in place. In other words, God says, I'll instruct you, I'll teach you. If I move the reins to go right, don't you fight me and go left. Does that make sense? Now, we've all done this, haven't we? <laughs> we have all done it. You don't want to do this because you are inviting something called discipline. And, if, and it's not fun and it's not enjoyable uh, if you grew up in a home where you were not disciplined, your Heavenly Father will quickly give you a course in what that feels like. Not because He's against you, because He's for you. Hebrews 12, those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. But you're going to learn to do it His way. Uh, there is a promise of guidance, but it's only given to those with a teachable spirit. If you're not teachable, you're going to go to summer school a little bit. Okay, so there's a flat out promise. If you want God to counsel you and give you guidance, he will give it to you. Does he always give it to you just immediately? Not always immediately. 
Uh, he'll give you wisdom. James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. If you're not sure what to do, ask him and he will give you wisdom for the next step. He may not give you the next two months or the next three months or the next six months, but he'll give you the logical next step. Okay, now, that is an ironclad promise of guidance. Now, here's number two. There is a prerequisite for guidance. And this is found in verses 1 through 7 of the same psalm. Um, this is a psalm of David. This psalm ties in with Psalm 51. This is a psalm where David is expressing repentance and great remorse for his sin with Bathsheba. Let's read it. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David, you, everyone knows this story, um, was up on his rooftop, saw this beautiful gal down at a lower elevation, getting in her tub at night, called her, you know, slept with her. Her husband was one of his mighty men. Um, um, Uriah the Hittite, Uriah, uh, and then she gets pregnant. So he sends for Uriah to come back. Uh, hey, you know, thanks for the report, Uriah. Go home and spend the night with your wife. Well, Uriah finds out sleeps on the, on the front porch, not even on the couch, on the porch, the front step. And David says, hey, what's the deal? Well, my men can't be with their wives. I'm not going to be with them. That guy had character. And so David got him and gave him another night, maybe to break him down. He did the same thing. So they send him back to battle. David sends a note, put him right on the front lines, and he was killed. So now David's an adulterer. Now David's a murderer. And after a certain amount of time, David marries Bathsheba, a very noble thing, everyone thought. That's how they spun it in the press release room. And uh, a very noble thing of David to take this poor widow and bring her in. And he lived for a year in deceit for a year. Watch how he describes that. Uh, in whose, how blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, watch this, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Verse 5, but I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He came clean. He poured out his heart before God. The deceit means he was living in darkness. He just brought it right out in the light. Nathan confronted him, said, you're the man, I am. And he came clean, okay? And there was forgiveness. So my point is this. The ironclad promise of guidance is preceded by the prerequisite of repentance of known sin. If there is known sin, if there is sin that you're coddling, if there is sin that you are excusing, if there is sin that you are rationalizing in your life, do not ask God for guidance because it makes no sense for guidance, because this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, if indeed that's what you're in. Does that make sense? It makes all kinds of sense.
But when we come clean, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I found this quote from Augustine or Augustine, however you want to approach it. My son Josh printed this out and left it on my desk by mistake. And I'm seizing it and I'm going to use it. Listen to what Augustine prayed. Without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own destruction? Let me read that again. By the way, if you know anything about Augustine, he was raised by a godly mother, departed from the faith, lived just a wild, wild life. And then the Lord began to come after him, brought him back. He says, without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own destruction? That's where we are if left to ourselves. That's where we are if left to our own devices. So then what do we need? We need another guide. We need a greater guide. Um, Now, I gave you the promise of guidance and the prerequisite of guidance. Now I want to give you one, two, three, four ways that God leads us, that he leads us. Because when we're asking for guidance, we're asking for leadership, right? I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Number one, you guys with me? Are you? Anybody got the score in the game? Somebody does. Come clean, come out of the darkness and tell us. <laughs> repent, repent of thy sin. It's all right. Zero, zero. Zero, zero? All right. You're out the door, man. Here's number one. So how does he guide me? How does he lead me? Number one, he leads me by his word. What a shock. He leads me by his word. I like this guy, John Bloom. Um, I've been reading some of his stuff. I'm going to read you two paragraphs. He says, <laughs> and I'm going to give you, he's going to, there's going to be a sentence, and then there's going to be a scripture verse. Okay? No one speaks like Jesus Christ. No one. Uh, Go to John 7, verse 46. The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. He is like no other man because Jesus is God. So no one speaks like Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God and the word that is God, John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So he is the word of God and the word that is God. He is the word of life, of life. That's First John 1.1. And when he speaks... His word is living and active. Hebrews 4.12, we've already quoted that. Word of God is living and active, sharpening to a sword. 
and he shows you the path of life. That's Psalm 16. Let's turn over there real quick. Sixteen eleven. Here's another promise. Watch this. You will make known to me the path of life. That's guidance. That's leadership. And again, I'd ask, where do you get it? You get it from the Word of God. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And we tend not to believe that we try to fill our lives with other things that we think will bring us pleasure and will bring us joy. And certain things, uh, certain things, um, you know, there, there's pleasures, there's, there's joy in certain things. Uh, th- there are certain pleasures and joys that are, are illegitimate. There are some that are very legitimate that is God-given to us, like Psalm 127 and 128. You know, a wonderful joy, a wonderful pleasure of God is family, being gathered around a table, you got your wife, you got your kids, you got the little grandkids, you got, you know, everybody's throwing, you got stuff. It's, that's great. That's a gift of God. Is it not? Yeah. But see, there's a place called heaven, and we're going there. And, and, and the scripture really doesn't give us a whole lot of information because we don't have the bandwidth to absorb it. But let me tell you, it's not a, it's not a floating on a cloud thing. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. But I'll tell you what, it's going to be. We're going to be in his presence and there'll be fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there will be pleasures forever, forever. Can't even imagine it. And if you know Christ, that's where you're going. And it cannot be taken away from you. Um, So he leads me by his word as I'm here right now on this earth. Number two, he leads and sustains me in the bad stretches of life. Okay? Turn me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Sometimes you get these little verses kind of tucked away, and it's easy to fly right over them. Um, Jeremiah 2.2, and then we're going to look at verse 6. Just jumping into it here. Hold on. Let me get here. Uh, Let's just pick it up at 1 to get the context. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. Watch this. You're following after me in the wilderness. Okay? So now this places it back. In that 40-year time in the wilderness, you're you're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. So this land that they were wandering in was a land where the soil was so bad that they didn't even sow seed. For one reason, it was so bad. Secondly, because they didn't know how long they were going to be there. You say, how do you know that? Well, look on down to verse 6. Um... They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Here they are again in the wilderness coming out of Egypt. Watch this. Who led us through the wilderness. Now he's going to describe the wilderness that they were in for 40 years. Through a land of deserts and of 
pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt. It was a land that was so bad. It was a land that was so depleted. It was a land that was, in a sense, so cursed that nobody lived there. Nobody would dare cross it. And this is where they were for 40 years. And what's my second principle here? He leads and sustains in the bad stretches of life. Because is it not true that we said earlier in this study that if the children of Israel found themselves in a wilderness and if Jesus was in the wilderness in Matthew 4, at some point you're going to find yourself in a wilderness and you're going to look around and what are you going to see? You're going to see desert. You're going to see pits. You're going to see drought, no rainfall, and you're going to see darkness. That happens. And when that happens to us, we're shocked and we're stunned because it's not what we anticipated for our life. It's an Ecclesiastes 7 situation. What is it, 13 and 14, that verse? Uh, 7, 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes. Consider the work of God who can straighten what he has meant. In the day of prosperity, be happy. That's easy. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So there is going to be a time when you're in the wilderness. You have been led in the wilderness. Why would you be in the wilderness? That leads me to number three. Um, and I'm editing here. I'll just be real honest with you. Before I go to three, I, I, I read a real long quote last week, and I promised myself I wasn't going to read a long quote. And I don't have a long quote. But what I do is I have two quotes that are semi-long that I've cut in half. I thought that was pretty slick on my part. See, here's what happens. Sometimes we look around. We're in a wilderness. It's not where we want to be. It can be a relational wilderness. It can be a health wilderness. And you've never been in this. You've never had a loss of health like this. Your health is threatened or your wife has left, or a child has left, or you know, it's just bad news at home, or financially you're just hanging on with your fingernails, whatever it might be. Under number two, see these bad, these bad pieces of land, these bad stretches, what happens here is he leads us through deep disappointments, he leads us through grievous loss, he leads us through financial droughts and debilitating darkness, Let me quote uh, Thomas Watson here. This guy suffered, this old Puritan pastor. He says this. Yeah, so why do we go through these hard things? As hard frost in winter bring on the flowers in the spring, and as the night ushers in the morning star, so the evils of affliction produce much good to those that love God. He goes on and says this. A sickbed often teaches more than a sermon. 
Affliction teaches us to know ourselves. In prosperity, we are for the most part strangers to ourselves. God makes us know affliction that we may better know ourselves. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's why we don't always have prosperity, because I need to grow. I need to mature. There's also another Puritan pastor named Obadiah Sedgwick. Sedgwick wrote this along the same principles. And you got to work the language a little bit. See, we all want prosperity. Sometimes God interrupts our prosperity, gives us affliction. Listen to this. In all the suspensions, in all the suspensions of any promised and convenient good that occurs in your life. So in other words, when good has been suspended and you're in affliction, wait upon providence. All of our good lies in the hand of providence, but this hand often prevents us. It pours good upon us as a cloud may suddenly, without warning, pour down the rain upon the earth. Many times, we just simply ask and we have what we desire. We feel our need, we uh, see a mercy, we ask God for it, and soon we enjoy it. Watch this. Yet many times, providence is pleased to delay and to put us off. We cannot get the good which we desire. Now, in this case, I say it is our duty to wait upon providence. What is waiting upon providence? It is an unlimited resignation of ourselves and our desires to the seasons or times of God's good pleasure with a continued expectation of the good that has been promised. You don't hear that on Christian television. Don't you do this with your kids sometimes? Don't you desire to do them good? But you wait. I can't remember who it was that told the story that they wanted and expected a car when they turned 16. They, they, all their friends were getting a car. They were asking for the car, and they didn't get the car. And instead, instead of getting a car for their 16th birthday, they got a book about this thick that was a, a book that had influenced both the parents and helped them in terms of living life responsibly and carefully. And, uh, and he was so disappointed by the book. He was so utterly and totally disappointed. And uh, weeks and months went by. I can't remember how long it was. It was months. And finally, he started picking up and just looking at that book. And he got a little interested in it. And then flipped. he started reading a couple chapters. And he got into it a little bit. And then he realized there was a real thin something in that. And he turned it. And what it was, it was a note from his dad. If you've read this far, you've shown the responsibility we had hoped. You're ready for a car. Is that not good? Was that not wise? Uh, yeah, wanted the son, but you know, they were concerned. Hadn't seen the necessary growth. It wasn't quite right yet. Wasn't that it wasn't going to be given, but they weren't ready to handle it yet. 
Number three. He leads us through disappointing delays and frustrating circumstances. I got an email from a friend yesterday asking for prayer about a situation, and we were on the phone last week talking about this, a deal he has been working on since, well, for a good year that should have been signed uh, back in May. And then another department got involved. It was a kiss of death. And they are having a meeting this week, and it doesn't look good. And there's a lot riding on this. Um, my friend is just, he's discouraged because of the disappointing delays and the frustrating circumstances. Once again, go back to Psalm 119. Because, see, you know about frustrating delays, and you know about, uh, uh, you know about disappointing delays and frustrating circumstances. Uh, I know about them. Go to Psalm 119, note verse 1989, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. That means your word stands firm. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. See, that's important to know when you've got disappointing delays and frustrating circumstances. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances. Watch this. Watch this. For all things are your servants. What would that mean? All things are your servants. Well, I'll tell you one thing it means. It means the circumstances of your life are his servants. Because he's sovereign over everything because all things are his servants. If you're experiencing a delay, that delay is not the master of your life. That delay is under the authority of the master of your life. But see, you only get that perspective if you're reading the Word of God. You're not going to get that anywhere else. Right? So how do you fight frustrating, frustrating, uh, what did I call it, circumstances and disappointing delays? By knowing that God is in absolute and complete Charge. Yeah, but we're going to have this meeting, and this one guy, he's pretty much has come to him. He's pretty much going to make the decision. Actually, he's not going to make the decision. He's going to do what God tells him to do. Really? Really? That's in the Bible. Psalm 21.1. No. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Your life is never in the hands of some human being. Your future is never in the hand of some committee or some chairman or CEO or some this or HR or anything. Your, hand, your life is in the hands of the living God. All things, all people, all leaders are his servants and they do what he tells them to do. Now you're not going to get that anywhere else except the word of God and that's how you bear uncertainty and bear delays that frustrate you and drive you nuts. 
So you walk into the meeting not seeing what he has decided, but what has God has decided and conveyed to him that he is going to obey, even though he doesn't know God, as God did with Cyrus in the Old Testament. And then you can relax because your father's in charge. You see? Does this make any sense? This sets me free, personally. It may not... Okay. Which leads me to the fourth point. And everyone said, good. <laughs> Except I missed my quote from Watson. And this, this is all time. See, why, why am I in the frustrating delays? Why am I in the disappointing delays and the frustrating circumstances? Here's a quote from Watson that is worth its absolute weight in gold. You probably heard me quote it before. Um, this is his book, um, All Things for Good, written, I think, in 1663. Uh, chapter 1 is based on Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Chapter 1 is uh, the best things work for good for the godly. Chapter 2 is the worst things work for good to the godly. It's twice as long as chapter 1. Chapter 3 is why all things work for good. Listen to this. God is a skillful physician. He knows what is best. God observes the different temperaments of men and knows what will work most effectually. Some are of a more sweet disposition and are drawn by mercy. Others are more rugged and knotty, K-N-O-T-T-Y pieces. These God deals with in a more forcible way. Some things are kept in sugar. Some things are kept in brine. God does not deal alike with all. He has trials for the strong and mercies for the weak. He is a faithful physician and therefore will turn all to the best. If God does not give you what you like, he will give you what you need. Gosh, is that good or what? A physician does not so much study to please the taste of the patient, but to cure his disease. We complain that very sore trials lie upon us. Let us remember God is our physician. Therefore, he labors to heal us than to humor us. God's dealing with his children, though they are sharp, yet they are safe in order to cure. There you go. That helps me. But I don't get that on the news. I don't get that on a blog. I get that in the Word of God. Number four, and I'm done. He leads through wise advisors who know the Word. Not only do you get in the Word, but you should have some advisors. I'm going to give you Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise. How do they get wise? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There, there ought to be some people in your life that are further down the trail, known the Lord longer, have a little more depth, just because they've been doing this for a while. The older men are to teach the younger men. So Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise. Proverbs 15, 22, without, cult, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. How many times have we run off on our own and done something and never checked it with anybody else? We've all done it. It's not the best way to live your life. 
There ought to be two or three people, at least two in your life, that if something major is going on, you're checking in with them and getting counsel. Here's number three, Proverbs 11, 14. In an abundance of counselors, there's victory. If you know some godly guys, uh, there ought to be some people in your life that you talk to, and you, why? Because they know the word. Hey, let me run this past you. I've got a couple guys in my life. I got a major decision. I'm on the phone with them. Let me run this by. You see any red flags? You see any yellow flags? And pretty much what they say, I'm going to do. I'm always, if Mary's got a red flag, I'm telling you, that's a red flag for me. She's not always right, but she's got a pretty good discernment. Why would I go against a woman who wants my best? Well, I've done that. And uh, she was gracious, but it kind of, I wound up in a ditch. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Just one word can turn your heart. Just one word, let me give you the next one. Proverbs 25, 7, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. You ever had someone speak to you a word that just changed your perspective, put courage in your heart, and just recalibrated you like a chiropractor? You ever had that happen to you? Yeah, with a word. Can I tell you what that is? That is a well-timed help. That is manna. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth. Thank you that you are the living God who has given us the living word. Hmm. How blessed we are, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.